Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Teenagers get a lot of bad press. Whether it's how they look, how they dress, the things they say, the way they say it, it sometimes seems as if they can't get anything right. And when it comes to language, it's clear that teenagers are special. But though anecdotal evidence abounds, just how special and in what ways has... Teenagers get a lot of bad press. Whether it's how they look, how they dress, the things they say, the way they say it, it sometimes seems as if they can't get anything right. And when it comes to language, it's clear that teenagers are special. But though anecdotal evidence abounds, just how special and in what ways has rarely been the subject of detailed empirical research. Sally Tuglimonti's book Teen Talk is the first step towards filling that gap. Using a variety of data sources and approaches, the book zooms in on some of the features that set teen language apart. In this interview, we discuss several of the words and structures featured in the book. Just, stuff, weird, awesome, and the much maligned like. We also discuss the special ecological niche that teen language has in the process of language change. I'm talking to Professor Sally Tagliamonti of the University of Toronto about her new book, Teen Talk, The Language of Adolescence. Sally... Teenagers, what's special about them? There are so many things that are special about teenagers, but as a language scientist, one of the most intriguing things to me was when my kids became teenagers, and all of a sudden, I started realizing that language innovation was happening right before my very eyes. I had spent the early part of my career studying conservative dialects, places where there were really off the beaten track, older people in small communities on mountaintops and small islands. But when my kids became teenagers, adolescents, I started realizing that if I wanted to tap into what was really going on in language now, that all I had to do was start listening to what was going on at my breakfast table. And that's an interesting challenge, actually, because... uh... Teenagers don't always like being listened to by people who aren't teenagers, right? So uh, what were some of the methods that you used as a non-teenager to tap into these developments and get a window on them? That is such a great question because that is actually the crux of the whole thing. I could sit there in my own home and eavesdrop on my own children and their friends, and I certainly did a lot of eavesdropping, taking children from one activity to another activity, and I used that very much in order to try to understand what was going on. But when it comes right down to it, when you're a language scientist, you can't just report anecdote. You are really concerned with getting appropriate data, and that data has to be scientific. It has to tap into a representative sample, and you have to get a lot of data. And so the big problem there for me was to try to observe teenagers as a middle-aged academic in a situation where they were not 
conscious of being observed by someone that was their parents' age. And so I had to think very carefully about that, and I had to become very clever. Well, one of the things I did, and there are a number of things I, I did, and from several different prongs, I was able to collect a very large amount of natural speech data from pre-adolescence and adolescence. And what I did was I engaged the help of my undergraduate students. So I designed an undergraduate research project that I called something like Catching Language Change. And I had young undergraduate students take the course. And what they did was they went out into their own social networks and interviewed their younger brothers and sisters, their neighbors, the kids they babysat, childminding, the people in their lives that were part of the pre-adolescent and adolescent generation right then. And I repeated that project over several years, I think about five or six years. So that was one way I did it. Another way I did it was to do a project where students collected materials from their MSN conversations. We're going back to the you know, late 2010s when MSN Messenger was a thing. Yes, and so, well. yes indeed, we, uh, we do. And, you know, all they had to do was dump those conversational histories into the project, and we collected millions of words of these very mundane conversations between 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds in a way that could never have been possible had I, you know, called them into my lab and said, hey, you know, tell me a story about your life. And so by doing these different things and using or, you know, engaging my undergraduates as part of this broad research project, I was able to collect millions of words of adolescence at the turn of the 21st century. And that's one of the big things that uh, sets this book apart from the media discourse on teen language as a whole, um, where you see a lot of impressions, uh, a lot of anecdotes, and you get claims like teenagers just use slang because they have a limited vocabulary. They don't know any other words, so, so that's why they do it. W what are you able to say to a claim like that? Well, this is the kind of claim that really spurred me on because I thought, this is so wrong. It's absolutely and utterly wrong. And I wanted to set the record straight. And so every claim I could find in the media or in the literature, you know, teenagers are destroying the language. Teenagers use like because, uh, you know, they, they, they don't know any other words and they stick like just anywhere in the sentence. And uh, any of the claims I was setting out to refute. And so... When you read the book, you'll see that the chapters are really focused on every single word I heard the media complain about from, you know, 1995 to 2005 and onwards. And I wanted to show that none of these features are slang. These features are part of a moving, shaking, vibrant trajectory of change in the language. And teenagers should not be blamed for degrading the language or bastardizing the language or, you know, destroying it in any way whatsoever. And in fact, teenagers are these vibrant movers and shakers and creative entities in the lifespan that propel language forward. And it is a creative and exciting and, you know, really laudable 
change time. I mean, it's a, it's a time when <clears throat> if there are changes going on in the language, that's where you're going to find them. So why is that? Why do teenagers have this special position in language change? Um, why do they seem to increment changes in, in such a particular way? Well, I have to be a little um, theoretical uh, in my response to that. And I'm basing my empirical investigations on William Lebov's work on language incrementation. And it is the idea that when kids learn their language, they learn their initial vernacular from their parents. And we've seen this over and over again in our studies. You look at really young kids and they're behaving pretty much like their own parents do. But the minute they get into a pre-adolescent position, and we see this with kids all the time, they're getting to about seven, eight, nine years old, and they're starting to develop an independent personality apart from their parents. And that separation continues right into late adolescence. At the same time, in Western societies, teenagers are become a moving force in the lifespan. I mean, in earlier stages of English and in other countries, teenagers are really not the most important people in the society. But increasingly over the 20th century, teenagers have become a marketing force to reckon with. As pre-adolescents go into what we call high school in North America, what happens is their social networks expand exponentially at the same time as their desire to separate from their parents becomes most intense. And so what's going on in this, like, this brew of linguistic innovation and uh, hormones and increasing social contexts and social media and pressure from marketing and all the kinds of things that are going on, you get an acceleration of whatever linguistic changes are in progress. And that acceleration happens across adolescence. And according to Lebov, it stabilizes the vernacular, kind of settles down in late adolescence and early adulthood as those same kids, children, move into the workforce. Now, what happens after that, the claim is that everyone stays relatively stable for the rest of their life. And current studies in sociolinguistics are beginning to probe all those hypotheses in one way or another. But nevertheless, back to the adolescence, for all these reasons, linguistic, sociocultural, developmental, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, adolescence is when a lot of changes happen. And linguistic change goes along with everything else. Thanks. So let's zoom in now on what's probably everyone's favorite teen word, which is like. Oh, yes. So what does like do in the English language? What's its function? Well, right now in contemporary English, like is highly multifunctional. It's a verb. It's an adverb. It's a conjunction. It's a discourse marker. It's a discourse particle. It's doing a lot of different things. Like is in flux. Some functions of like, like I like you, you like me, and I like pizza too, have been in the language for a very long time. The adverb function, approximating adverb, how far is it? Oh, it's like three kilometers. Many, many people use that. It's been in the language for quite a long time. 
problem is when people hear like they're hearing a lot of it amongst the younger generations who are continuing to push like forward in many different ways. Now, in the UK, for example, you get a lot of like at the ends of sentences in conservative dialects, especially in the North. In North American dialects, you get a lot of like at the beginning of sentences as a, as a, you know, an initiator, like, you know what I mean? And that kind of thing. However, increasingly what happened across the 20th century is that like moved into the syntax of the language, sort of being associated with different adjunction points. So before a sentence, before a subordinate clause, before a noun, before an adjective, et cetera, et cetera. It, it does that. In those positions or those uses of like are called particles. And it just so happens that younger people have a lot more places in the grammar where they can stick like into the structure. So you can say like two miles down the street, but you can also say like John, and you can say like angry. And these uses of like are not used by older people, and so they seem a little weird. He's like tall, for example. The other problem is that like is used overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly as a quotative. What I mean by that, it's used to frame the quotes you put into a story. So you can say things like, for example, he's like, oh no, and I'm like, yeah, and he's like, what happened? And I'm like, I don't know. And so people are framing their stories using like as a quotative. That is the one use of like we can pretty much pinpoint to the early 1970s. And when people hear like, they're hearing all those different likes. And so, of course, amongst the younger generation, they're hearing a lot more of them. And it's not what's in the standard grammar, and it's not what's in the standard dictionaries. And so, of course like gets a very bad reputation, especially among young people who are pushing not only the frequency of like forward, but also the places in the grammar where you can put it. What is it being used for? I take a stab at that in my new book, Team Talk, where I make the argument that what's happening is maybe like is becoming some kind of focus marker or topic marker. Many languages have these topic markers. English doesn't have a topic marker. So it makes sense that it could be the case that English is actually developing another type of marker that's used in discourse to tell stories, to tell about what happened, and to perform a topic marking function in the grammar. Thanks. Now, the, the quotative like is particularly interesting because it's not just reported speech, right? It can be some sort of reported attitude as well. Exactly. And in many of my studies of Be Like, and you know, the first one I wrote was when I was at the University of York in England, and that was just when that quotative was just beginning. It was hovering around 10, 15% of the quotative system. So the question is, well, why did it just accelerate so quickly? And one of the arguments I've made is it's not just that it came in to mark quoted speech, but that there was a storytelling style that was developing at the same time where the narrator was giving you all these details about what was going on inside his or her head. And people hadn't told stories like that before. I mean, when you think of the things 
that have been written that are stories in the past, like Beowulf, there's a lot of action going on. People are killing other people and there are uh, you know, lots of uh, big actions happening. But if you listen to young people tell stories today, action is often not a part of it. Instead, they're telling you stories that go something like this. And then I was like, oh my God, I think that's, I think that's my ex-boyfriend. And I'm like, oh my God, do you think he's going to see me? And I'm like, I think he saw me. And then I'm like, he is. And he's walking over and I'm like, he's coming over. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm scared. Something like that. I can't really quite do it because I'm not a member of the population that does it. But the point I'm trying to make is that the way people tell stories changes. And light comes in and takes over as the way you tell those kinds of stories. The things that are going on in your head. I'm like, I'm so scared. And I'm like, is he coming over? These are things that are not being spoken. They're clearly what's going on in people's head. And even nowadays, what you hear is that people are using like to talk about what they're doing in text messaging. And then I was like, hello. And then he texted, you know, this, but they're using like there too. So as the way we do interaction changes, language change comes in to enable us to do those kinds of interactions in a way that's colorful and and goes along with the storytelling styles of our generation. Another area that seems to be subject to a lot of change in the English language is intensifiers. Could you explain what an intensifier is and how it works? Well, if you want to emphasize something in English, you can do it in a number of ways. But one very common way is to use an adverb that boosts the meaning of an adjective. So an adjective is something like beautiful or big or happy. And if you want to tell someone that you are more than just happy, what do you say? You say, I'm very happy. However, there is a very colorful and versatile way that you can say that in English today because you can use any number of different intensifiers. So you can say, I'm so happy. I'm super happy. I'm incredibly happy. I'm excessively happy. I'm, I'm so, so happy. And the way different generations boost the meaning of their adjectives is a remarkable gauge of generational change in contemporary English. So your great aunt Matilda might say, that's very nice, dear. Your mother might say, that's really nice. And your kids are going to say things like, that is so sick. Or that's super cool or any number of other intensifiers that come and go. And intensifiers come and go very quickly because, of course, the minute you start using one a lot, it's not very remarkable anymore. And so if you want to be cool, you want to use the most interesting, posh, incoming, new intensifier. And so intensifiers can't really get very frequent uh, because the minute they become really frequent, they're kind of passe and people want to use new ones. So they burn out really quickly. They do. I mean, the standard intensifier very has had incredible lasting power. I mean, people are still using it after you know, hundreds of years. Really is still in there as well. But it's the lesser known ones like wicked and well. And, and the other thing about intensifiers is they don't ever really die. You can still pull them out of Old English, for example, your own specialization or the history of English. You know, every once in a while, like these old intensifiers just come in, pop up, 
And there they are. So they never really die. They just kind of like fade away, but not into oblivion because you can bring them up and use them again anytime. So could you give us a picture of the landscape at the moment? What's been happening over the last few decades? What are the, the big movers in the intensifier scene? Well, when I first started studying intensifiers, I was basing my research on the, the uh, research by Labov, who said that really was the new up-and-coming new intensifier. And it, it, and it really is. It's used very frequently in North America, for sure, and even in the UK. But uh, when I started studying intensifiers, I happened to be watching a lot of uh, the television series Friends with my kids. And I started noticing that the Friends characters were using so a lot. And I, I wasn't a so user at the time, but the characters on Friends were saying things like so happy and so handsome and so interesting and so this and so that. And I thought, wow, there's a new intensifier on the horizon. I wonder if it will come in and usurp really and, and all the young people will be using it and it will be a new intensifier. And certainly it was. So was very frequent uh, in the late 2010s. And I suspected it would just keep going. And did it? I was, I was wrong. I was wrong. It didn't just keep going. Another one came in before I could even blink my eyes. And now, all over North America, instead of so, although in addition to so is more the, the right way of saying it, everybody is now saying super. Oh, that's super interesting. That's super cool. It's not that super is new. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It was there before. But all of a sudden, it kind of accelerates in frequency. And I don't know how far it will go. So you mentioned friends and yes. your study of friends. I guess one of the big questions about that is when you see a TV show like Friends, is it just mirroring what's going on in society at large? Or does it actually contribute itself via its viewers and listeners to accelerating or, or changing the pace or, or changing the direction of, of language change? It's a really good question. I argued in my paper on Friends that it was really the Friends characters who were tapping into what was already going on in society. But at the same time, in that privileged position of being on this like mega, you know, popular show that just went all over the planet and everybody was watching it, I do think that those characters enhance their frequency of use of that incoming form, at least for a certain amount of time. And so was very vibrant during the period that Friends was on the air and very, very popular. However, since Friends went off the air, it's not that so went away, but it certainly didn't push so into the heights of use that the standard intensifiers very and really have. It's never usurped them, at least not in the general population. So I would say, given that evidence, that what the happens in media is that the characters in media, where they have the opportunity to use their own or input their own vernacular into the dialogue or into the scripts, actually just tap into what's going on and maybe push it forward a little bit. Right. What about gender? Do women use more intensifiers? That's something that you, you sometimes hear. Well, it certainly has been the case in any of the studies I have done that women are going to pick up these new intensifiers quicker, faster, push them forward. And 
men are going to lag behind. And it was so cool in the uh, the Friends study. There were six characters, three women and three men. And you could see the women were all using so at heightened rates compared to the guys who were much below. And it was a statistically significant difference. And you get this over and over again in language. The cool thing that happened when I um, when I did the study, I replicated that study using a very large corpus from Toronto, is I discovered that although the adolescent girls were pushing so forward, it looked like the guys were really lagging behind. But then I looked at the full spectrum of the intensifiers that were in use, and I discovered that the guys were using intensifiers too, but they were using a different one. And they were using the intensifier or the not-so-intensifier pretty. So in American English, North American English, pretty can be used as kind of a, you know, a not-so-intense intensifier. So the adolescent guys were using just as much pretty as the girls were using so. And I interpret that to mean that in adolescence, what happens along with that incrementation process that we just talked about is that guys and girls undergo, or maybe undergo is the wrong word, but there's an intense separation of the sexes during adolescence. Girls want to sound like girls, and guys don't want to sound like them. And so you see a great deal of gender differentiation amongst adolescents. And this might have to be speculation, given what we know at the moment, but um, how much of that do you think is, is to do with being a human being, and how much is to do with the fact that Western society is the way it is? Because most of the studies that we have so far are from places like the UK and Canada and the US. Um, what do you think? Uh, it is a thorny question to ask, because, of course, you raise the ire of many people who have different ideas about gender and uh, sex and gender and socialization and all the things that go into making the statement that Labov has done and many people have done and I have done. And that is to say that women lead linguistic change, which is a fairly curious thing. So why is it? And then you kind of go through the arguments and there are many arguments to suggest that, you know, women might be, you know, biologically predisposed. Women might be socially condition to use more, you know, uh, proper variants and more forward variants. And then you think, as you just said, well, maybe it's just Western culture. And yet that same pattern has been found in uh, studies of Arabic. And it has been found in studies in the history of English. And it has even been found in ancient Egyptian and old Babylonian. If you catch something that's a change in progress and with the proviso that we have limited evidence from women in the past, it still looks like women have this something that leads them to lead at least most types of linguistic change. And so it does remain fairly speculative. One of the interesting things that I did discover in Teen Talk was that at least one change was being very strongly led by, by the young men uh, and as far as I know, that's the strongest evidence I've ever seen that we have a change that can be propelled by men. And what change is that? That was the use of stuff as a generic. So at least in North America, here in Toronto, stuff is becoming an all-purpose generic. So if you ask, well, as I would ask my children, 
hey, how was school today? What did you do at school? And they would say, stuff. And what does that mean? One does not know. But it seems to be the case that when you want to talk about generic anything in contemporary North American society, you use stuff. And men have a tendency to use it far more than women. That's very interesting. So what are the other competitors on the uh, generic scene? Things. Things? All sorts of things. Many things. things. Many things. Uh, But stuff has been rising over the past, at least uh, uh, across the 20th century, to the point where now it's even, uh, and this is really interesting from a historical perspective, it's extending into contexts where you would never have used it before. Like, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to Home Depot to get a couple of stuffs. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so we sort of see this like change in action. Not only is it coming in to mark generic, you know, mass nouns, but just like we would expect in linguistic change, there's analogical extension and it's going into other types of nouns as well. And so that's really interesting from a linguistic point of view because it shows us that those principles of linguistic change that we know and love from looking at historical processes are present in contemporary varieties as well. Mm, We can see them going on right now. Exactly. That's very exciting. So I'm a historical linguist, as you pointed out, but I'm also a syntactician. And what really got me excited as a syntactician was the chapter that was about sentence starters. Um, Because Teenagers have interesting usage of sentence starters, as you demonstrate, but again, it's not random. It's not purely willful play. There's pattern, there's method to the madness, right? Exactly. And I started noticing when I, when I began studying teen language, of course, so many features stand out. And of course, you, as a scientist, are, are looking for whether there's any kind of regularity to what they do. And one of the things I wanted to do was try to figure out if all that stuff that was going on, there's my good use of generic stuff, all the things that the kids were putting at the beginning of sentences before the canonical subject. You know, we know in syntax that English has, you know, subject, verb, object, order. So what's all that other stuff before the canonical subject? And in some cases, there there were a lot of things there, a lot of words. And I got the idea, uh, based on some early work by Sankoff, David Sankoff, a North American sociolinguistic and mathematician, that maybe there was some regularity there. So in consultation with my syntactician colleague, Diane Nassim, I said, well, how could we figure out if there are, are slots in there, just like there are, there are slots in the syntactic structure? And so I devised a means by, you know, taking into account, like, how... How many, how many things can you get there? And is there an order to them? And, you know, what comes first and what comes second? And to my great surprise, I discovered that there was so much more regularity there than I had ever imagined. And I, had, I made a first attempt at making an inventory of how those things happen uh, in, the, in the Team Talk book. And I'm hoping that I will continue to work on that and that it will stimulate the interest of other people in uh, furthering a more formal analysis of what's going on there. 
So could you walk us through that inventory? It's it's got a sort of solar system like structure, right? Yeah, right now I I think I can say that I just wanted to make an inventory of what was there. And it seems the way I I laid it out is that the discourse markers appear at the beginning and there are at least two slots for them. So you can get a slot that has, you know, so blah, 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 or well, blah, 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 blah. And in rare occasions, you can actually get two of them in there. So what there is what we would call stacking. So you can get two discourse slots. And I think that's parallel to what has happened at earlier stages in English, where sometimes you get doubly filled comps, or as the language changes, you get two things, and then gradually what happens is the structure becomes one. So you can get things like, you know, so you know, uh, or well like. And I discovered that the slots were very regular with that, and also that you could position the, the conjunctions just before so, and then, so, you know, and it seems like it's a, it's a random string, but if you actually look at it quantitatively and, and tabulate or, or quantify what occurs, you start seeing that every time you have then, so has to come after it. And every time you have then, so, the only place you know can come is after it, and so on and so forth. And so I tried to make a, a template for how, the data I had available to me were structured with the hope that I would continue working on it and other people would start looking at the varieties that they have access to as well. Well, I hope so, uh, because this is extremely interesting stuff. Again, that's a stuff generic, I think. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on now to how people end sentences. Um, oh, yes. The key yes. notion here seems to be the, the general extender. Uh, could you oh, tell yes. us about general extenders? Uh, I became fascinated with general extenders, um, the things that you put on the ends of sentences. Jenny Cheshire, a famous UK sociolinguist, started working on these things. And because I had access to all this teenage material, I thought, well, I'll, I'll see what's happening with them as well. And uh, along with uh, my student, Derek Dennis, we did this big study of general extenders in Toronto. And much to our surprise, we discovered that there was this incredible change going on so what's a general extender? It's the thing people put at the ends of sentences, and they go something like this. I like cats and dogs and that kind of thing. I like pickles and chips and stuff like that. And it's the stuff, there I go again, hmm. it's the, uh, the range of items that people put at the ends of sentences that was intriguing to me. And we discovered that if you were relatively old, you would say things like, and things like that, and things of that nature, and things. But if you're young, the younger you are, you had more of an inclination of saying things like pickles and chips and stuff like that, pickles and chips and stuff. And there was this massive lexical change going on where things was turning into stuff. Moreover, there was this broad range of things that were being put on the ends of sentences. It's almost like people need to put things at the ends of sentences to make reference to the groups of uh, entities that they're, they're referring to. And we all do this. And it's even in the standard written language where we use etc. Mm -hmm. and so on. 
But like the sentence starters, it's something that you very rarely see any reference to in traditional grammars, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. And then there's this whole inventory of forms. So they can be really long, like things like, and things of that nature, or just, and things. And so they can be long or they can be short, and they can have a generic like things in it, or they can have a generic like stuff in it. And depending on how old you are, you use different ones. And so there was this whole other regularity at the ends of sentences that would never be part of prescriptive grammar because they're outside the normal sentence. And it's not just general extenders that are there. In every variety of English around the world, people put other things at the end too. Like in Canada, we have a very uh, noteworthy sentence ender. So if you're in Toronto and you're over a certain age, you're going to say things like, it's a nice day, eh? And in England, you'd probably say, it's a nice day, yeah? And if you're in New Zealand, you might say, it's a nice day, hey? And so people sort of have this jocular, you know, vernacular way of putting things at the beginning and ends of sentences that were once thought to be irrelevant and extra grammatical. But now, by looking at it systematically, you can see that there's a lot of regularity in there, systematicity, and also interactional necessity. And in fact, I had this experience recently where I was uh, using audio clips of individuals and they were you know, rife with sentence starters and sentence enders and all kinds of interesting phenomena. And the people who uttered these sentences said, oh, could you take those out? And so I, you know, I made the attempt. I went in and I modified these audio clips so that there were no sentence starters or sentence enders. And you know what? When I played back those audio clips, the people sound utterly insincere. So it, without those, those markers of interactional discourse in the way people use language, there's something weird about it, and it doesn't sound the same at all. Well, usually when I finish these interviews, I'm, uh, I go and edit them and edit out at least the ums and the ers and yes. stuff like that and so on. But now I'm thinking, I really shouldn't be doing this. At least I'm depriving future linguists, future <laughs> linguistic generations of, of a good source of data. Well, depending on where you, you direct your research focus, you, any number of things may be interesting, even the ums and ahs. Mm. So when people talk about discourse particles as, as linguistic Cinderella's, is, is this what they mean, that they've been lacking, they've been neglected? I think that's what anyone who studies these discourse markers or particles would, would say. I mean, I suspect, and, and this is just me speculating, that these markers and particles are, are not just interactional discourse regulatory devices. I kind of suspect that some of them are finding their way into the grammar. And we just have to figure out what's going on in order to see what they're doing. Because, of course, there are other multifunctional words in the English language that are not the infamous-like. And we don't really think of them as being strange and unremarkable. But that's because those words have made their way into our grammar, and so they're sanctioned by the language police, if you will, or the prescriptive grammarians. So I, I kind of think that it, when we see these, these vibrant, rich, frequent markers that 
as linguists, we should be really attending to them because they may well point us in the direction of how our complex adaptive system of language is maneuvering itself into another stage. And that is speculative, obviously, but I'm certainly watching a number of things to see what happens as they move forward in time. I'll watch with great interest as well. So another word that's multifunctional like this is the word just. Is this something that's changed its meaning? Is it used differently by teenagers? Well, right now, I would say that just is uh, is my quicksand. I mean, it's it's there. It seems to be rising in frequency. And I don't exactly know what it's doing yet. Uh, and I think in the, in the book, I, I go out on a limb and I suggest that maybe it's becoming some kind of aspectual marker. It seems to be collocating more and more with verbs in English today. And so I suspect, and I am watching it carefully to see what it, what happens to it from now on, just as hard to get your, your uh, analytic head around because it could be that it's just functioning as an adverb and it's increasing because just can mean simply and it can mean all kinds of, of different things like just crazy. It, it can be an intensifier even. And so the multifunctionality of just makes me suspicious that something may be going on and it is in the process of change. Uh, so watch for that one too. Mm, I will. What about adjectives then? Adjectives oh. are a domain where there's huge amounts of variation, I think, everywhere, yeah. right? Um, what about yes. teenagers? What do they do? What's special about their adjectives? Well, I started studying adjectives because I thought they were they were interesting and I thought they would be uh, something that my students could really get their head around. And also I had a suspicion that they were changing fairly rapidly. And so the, the question is, well, how, as an analyst, do you study this this versatile you know feature of language which arguably semantically every adjective has its own nuance so i had to figure out how to do it and i first started looking at it by saying to myself well why don't we look at a specific semantics field not you know i can't adhere to the variationist notion of semantic equivalence because no adjective is going to mean exactly the same thing and yet I felt like there was something going on here. So the adjectives of strangeness became the locus of my first uh, inquiry. Well, how do you say something is unusual? In the corpora uh, that I have access to, representing speakers, individuals born from the early 1900s right up until the early 21st century, what do people do when they want to talk about something that's strange? Well, you go to the old uh, Oxford English Dictionary, you try to find a you know, how many different words are there in English to say strange, unusual, eerie, et cetera, et cetera? There are many. Well, uh, are they used with equal force, with equal frequency amongst all people, uh, male, female, old, young? Not at all. And in fact, I've discovered that there was this remarkable trajectory of change such that if you're old, older, like you're born in the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, you're more likely to say strange or unusual. But the younger the people were, and in particular the teenagers, the word was weird. And they hardly used any other word. I mean, they know the words for strange, unusual, eerie, and they can use them. But in jocular conversation, the one they use the most is weird. Weird. 
It is weird. And I even tried to take a stab at why I thought that would be the case. And, uh, you know, in speculative, uh, you know, again, theoretical and speculative, because since I didn't ask these students, you know, these people, where, why do you use weird, not uncanny? And they might not be able to give you a straight answer anyway, right? Yes, they can't. So you don't know where you get your words and you don't even know your own words until someone points it out to you. And then you all of a sudden realize, hey, I guess I do use that word a lot. Mm. Always a spooky moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. And now we're doing another big study on another semantic field, and that's the semantic field of positive affirmation. And these are words that people use to say something is really good. So what do you use to say really good? Great, excellent. What do you say? Yeah, there's so many of them. And I, I've discovered that English has an abundance of words for positive evaluation. So which word you use actually identifies your generational cohort. So if you're in your 80s, you might say, that's terrific. Uh-huh. But if you're a teenager, you're going to say, at least in North America, that's awesome. Uh-huh. And when I was living in the UK in the late 90s, it was, that's brilliant. Yeah, I recognize that one. Definitely recognize that one. Right. So these words may seem trivial, but together, all the words and constructions that we've been talking about actually give us a very unique perspective on generational change, linguistic change. And sometimes people say to me, well, why does it matter? Like, why should we study these words? They're just words. And I say, well, people are judged by words. People are judged by the way they speak all the time. And so if linguists can provide some social commentary on these words and talk about how they're part of a really amazing system that language is, then, you know, hopefully that will help people feel more positively disposed to these wonderful words that people are using, even if they are words like like and just and stuff and, and things like we might not necessarily think are great words. Well, at the very least, uh, we can use our position as language scientists to uh, call people out in the media when they say something that's just nonsense. Exactly. And in the, in the book, Teen Talk, I, I hope I've provided some, you know, really empirically grounded statements and, and evidence to suggest that young people are really very creative and they're on the front lines of linguistic change. And we should listen to them, uh, even if they're using words and phrases and constructions that are not part of standard grammar. Absolutely. Well, before we finish, let's talk a bit about uh, different media the internet, text messaging, because this is the subject of the biggest chapter in the book. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that undeniably has only been around for the last 20, 30 years maximum. So what's the role of these different media in determining people's use when it comes to linguistic variables like this? Well, the internet is a, a boon for language scientists like us because it gives us this incredible range of material that we can get access to it so much more easily than to go out and get people to talk to you in conversation because there it is. And it's, it's already written down. And indeed there is a veritable renaissance of new written registers in contemporary language. Think about it. 
the internet is not monolithic. The way people are interacting on the internet and in interactive written registers is just an explosion of new language material. At the same time, we have to keep in mind that what is going on in these registers? It's like people used to study, you know, speech and uh, recipes and uh, court records and ordinances and sermons. There was this whole range of different spoken material, but now we have this whole range of written material. And so, wow, get in there and see what's going on. And again, my motivation was the media reports that said things like, it's the demise of the English language. You know, the teenagers are in there and they're texting and they're just, you know, they're massacring English syntax, for example. So I thought, okay, well, let's go and find out what's going on. And again, I designed a research project, and I had first-year students, and I said, you know, uh, you'll be research collaborators with me, and we will collect as big a sample of interactions on the Internet with young people, and we will see. Are their interactions riddled with these acronyms that you know, mean nothing? Do they use uh, all these typographical errors? And what, what's going on? Well... You get a million words of data from teenagers. I think the first study was 71 different teenagers, men, females, and males. And you look at where they use these terrible acronyms, and you find out that they don't really use them that much. You know, they have these mundane conversations about where they're going to go for lunch and where they should meet up after class, and they use acronyms. They do use them. But so does everybody else in the world. And we forget that our worlds are filled with acronyms. So they use acronyms. They're not the same acronyms that the older generation use. They use them, but they don't use them nearly as much as people think. And in fact, the words that they use the most are the same old words that we always knew were the most frequent words. I and he and she and and. And so one of the big messages for the first studies that I, I did was that what kids are doing on the internet is, is really not as extraordinary as you think. And there's just, you know, using the same type of vernacular patterns as, as people have always used. Uh, so that was the first step. So what is it about these features that makes people react so viciously and violently against them? Again, I think it's because they are so extraordinarily associated with youth. And the minute you have young people, you know, putting the wrong suffixes on and not dotting their I's or crossing their T's, the language police come out in, in full force. And yes, indeed, these are new registers that are developing. So as a user of SMS on my phone and uh, various registers of Internet communication, email, for example, instant messaging, Facebook messaging, we know that there are rules and regularities associated with each one of these registers. And as people kind of navigate into these registers, they use the rules and regularities of each one. And so the next study I did was I tried to tap into each of these different media, registers, whatever you want to call it. I got young people to give me or to donate to the project their interactions using texting on phones, email, Facebook messaging or MSN messaging, 
And I have to say right out that this kind of thing is no longer possible because, of course, smartphones came out very soon after. And nowadays, everybody is using their smartphone for just about everything. But depending on the device they use, they will use language quite differently. In any case, the comparison of the same kids in different media was very revealing because it showed me that the same person can exhibit extremely abbreviated, unpunctuated, internet-specific acronyms in texting on their phone and in email communication have a completely different looking grammatical structure for their communications. And the fact that young people can navigate fluidly through these different written registers demonstrated to me that what they're doing is learning how to navigate in a way that, I mean, an older person is not going to be able to do. And having a, a fresh new user of a cell phone in my own house, a mobile phone in my own house in the last few weeks, when he first started texting, he's using full sentences and, you know, he's, he's texting like he was in a writing class. But gradually he has learned that when you're texting, you get to use all this other kind of thing that's appropriate for that register. Right. So this kind of switching between registers really puts the nail in the coffin of the idea that teenagers are only doing these, these things because they don't know any better. Right? Exactly. And the really cool thing that I discovered was, although they use different forms, they might spell things differently or use different punctuation, when you look at the underlying grammar, it's exactly the same. They're using exactly the same grammar, exactly the same variable structures as they do in writing, as they do in email, as they do in instant messaging. They are just employing different forms to do it. Great. So we don't have to worry about the uh, impending demise of the English language. I suspect not. That is good to hear. It is. Well, we're almost out of time, so I will wrap up by asking you, what sort of super cool projects are you working on now and stuff? Oh, oh, that's a good question. I always seem to have a few pots in the fire. And uh, one of the things that I'm looking at is how people give directions. And so uh, one of the projects that's getting a lot of press right now is I conceived of a project where instead of getting sitting down and talking to people and getting them to tell me stories, which is my usual modus operandi, I went out and I had my students go and ask everyone one question. And the question was, can you tell me how to get to Tim Hortons, which is a ubiquitous coffee shop here in, in Canada? And then we asked people that question, old and young, male and female, only we went to different places. And what we discovered was that different places actually have different ways of giving directions. So when you're in the city, you talk about things in terms of cardinal directions. But when you're in a small community, you use a lot of things like landscape markers, you use relative directions, you use different prepositions, and you even use different verbs of motion. And that, to me, is pretty incredible because it gets us to think about what does typology mean in language? Does it really reflect differences in language? Or does it reflect, can you actually see a range of typological things within the same dialects of a single language? Another project I'm looking at is to extend our analysis of intensifiers to look not just at an ambient population born and raised in the same community, 
But what happens when you have an immigrant group coming in or several immigrant groups? What do they pick up as being part of the innovative structures of a speech community? Do they pick up on the funky new intensifiers, for example? Or do they use their, their standard English grammar that they, they learned in school? And so there are so many new vistas to look at in language. You just have to let your curiosity guide you. Certainly, as long as teenagers keep doing new and interesting things, you're not going to be out of a job anytime soon. Exactly right. Exactly right. All right. Well, this has been fascinating. Uh, and I will just say thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you, George. It's been a real delight to talk about Teen Talk with you today. You've been listening to New Books in Language, and I've been talking to Sally Tagliamonti about her new book, Teen Talk. This is George Walton thanking you for listening. <laughs>